Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Praise God. I'm so glad you're here. If you're here, that makes God smile. Anytime we do something for God on our, of a willing heart, or even if we're not willing, and he said do it, and we just do it out of obedience, that makes God happy. And you being here, if you're here on your own accord, or whether it's against your will, but you still know it's out of obedience to be here, then you know you're making God happy. I hope you did not come here to be entertained. Because the Bible says, God's Word says, we're not supposed to come to church to be entertained. We're supposed to be coming to church. We're supposed to be reading God's Word because we're seeking His face and we desire to learn more about Him. Those who seek, Jesus said on the Mount of Olives, shall find. Those who ask shall receive. Right, And those who knock, the door will be opened to them. If this is your first time listening to me, hello, I'm Pastor Ed, and I come to you from McKinney, Texas, and this is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches of these last days, and this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. If you guys want to join me, please, it's enough of me speaking on my own. We always ask God to bless the service and bless the message, for I'm not your teacher, the Holy Spirit is, the Word says. So we need to pray and ask God to help us understand His Word, for it is only, the Scripture says, only by the Spirit of God, why Anybody can understand the things of God. So, Lord, we just thank you, Lord God. And we, uh, Lord, we know that there are two or more gathered in your name here, Lord God, that, that love you. Lord, so we know that you said that you promised that you would be there, you would be here. So, Lord, we thank you. We welcome this special presence, Lord. How, whatever it's different than how you're always with us, Lord, it's different. Because you said wherever two or more gathered, Lord, we, we know it's just, that's something different. And so, Lord, we welcome you here, and we pray that our heart attitudes, our ears to hear, Lord, would please you. That as we have these ears to hear what you have to say, and not just to listen to the things that you say is like a white noise, kind of in the background somewhere where, you know, we just kind of listen to it as we, you know, do whatever. But, Lord, I pray that we'd have ears to hear what you have to say to us, Lord, and that those ears to hear and your words today, Lord, would continue to change us, Lord God, and not leave us the way we were yesterday. I pray, Lord God, that whatever you speak to us today, however you speak it to us, Lord, however your Holy Spirit speaks it to us, Lord, we'd receive it, and that, Lord God, that your words would change us, Lord, either to save us or bring us closer unto you. We thank you, Lord, and we love you, and we praise you. Holy Spirit, please speak. We thank you, and we love you, and we praise you, God in heaven. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. So you can turn to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 1 through 4. I'm stark contrast from last week, right? Last week we covered a whole chapter. Today we're just going to hit about four verses, 1, 2, 3, and 4. Uh, but I'm not going to teach on them or read them until I give the overview of last week's section, my thoughts from last week's message. It was a hard pill for them to swallow. Last week, as I said last week, talking this week now, Stephen's sermon was the second longest sermon in the entire New Testament. Next to Jesus' on the Mount of Olives. I'm just about out of that, or I'm just about getting down to my daily Bible reading through the Bible. End of chapter 6, disciple table waiting servant Stephen of God, servant of God Stephen was accused of speaking evil of God and Moses after he had won a debate and, and whomped up bad on some Jews who had come from a synagogue and disputed with him. 
He was arrested and brought before the religious leaders. Then in the beginning of chapter 7, they awaited Stephen's response or his defense to the lies that they said that he said. He proceeded to give them no defense of himself or the things that he did not say and instead gave them a response that regaled them with a sermon of an overview of their ancestors' history and that sermon kept them glued to every word that he spoke. How their nation began, hardships that their ancestors and key players in their history had gone through, and most importantly, their ancestors' soiled history of their constant rejection of Moses and God as they often slid off the path of obedience to God and His ways. Plus, he talked about God's punishment and discipline to them and upon them for doing such things. And all of his reply, think of it, went on for some 50 verses. Wow! What a response. That was a long, long response for that for those guys to sit there and listen for that long. That was a supernatural miracle of God that they actually sat there and listened that long. And why did Stephen go through giving them this history lesson and of all their forefathers' disobedience toward God and Moses instead of defending himself? Because he loved them. And he did not care about himself or what happened to himself. Instead, he wanted them to be able to swallow one of the hardest pills of truth that they'd ever have to swallow. That pill, they were a stiff-necked people and resisting God and His Holy Spirit again, just like their forefathers had done before them, and not following God and His plan through Jesus Christ that God made through Him in the sacrifice of His only begotten Son for the sins of the world and of course, he slipped this in right at the end of the sermon after he had kept them regaled with all these other things. Brilliant sermon by Stephen because they really had already judged him guilty for the things that he did not say. Remember, they had multiple witnesses and in their religion, all, multiple witnesses against him is all that they needed. Yet he got them to listen to the things he told them of for a long time. And the whole time, all he was doing was setting them up for this hard pill of truth that he was wanting them to swallow because he loved them and he wanted them to be saved. Bible tells us that they were cut to the heart, which means that God through them or God through Stephen got through to them. Yet scripture says that they closed their own ears and didn't relent or repent of the evils uh, of rejecting God's plan for salvation in Jesus Christ. Really sad for them is God earnestly desired them to turn to him. He earnestly, he, and the, way I, the reason I say earnestly is because if you remember, two times before this arrest and trial, two other groups of Christians were on trial, and he was trying to reach out to them through them. So this being like the third time that God's confronted them with their sin that they were stuck in, and yet he's still trying to reach out to them because he still loved them. And yet they continued to be stiff-necked at this time because, remember, unfortunately, they stoned Stephen to death for his proclamation of these things. Just thinking of how good and kind and loving God is for this continual outreach. I mean, we think it's a lot if somebody hurts us and we forgive them one time. And then as it, if it happens multiple times, well, you know, okay, I mean, I forgive them, but that doesn't mean I, you know, I want them to be my friend anymore. I, you know, I'll just... Forgive them yet yet to God that he keeps. And, and when God's calling you into a relationship with himself, that means he wants to make you closer than a brother. 
He wants to make you closer than a friend, closer than your mother. That's how close God wants you to be. Just, just the words of the psalmist David in Psalm 36, 5 through, 6, 5 through 6 come to my mind here about God's love and about God's just awesomeness and drawing the lost that even continue to rebel against him. He says this, David says this of God, Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. That means his mercy is as high as the heavens. Think of it. How, how, how high are the heavens? Wow, that's high. It's unreachable, really, unsearchable. And that's his mercy. It's high as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. That's pretty faithful. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. That's God's love, and that's God's mercy, and that's God's forgiveness, and that's, that is our loving God. Nobody loves more than God. Nobody can love more than Him, for the Bible says that He is love. And to you today, I don't know who you are or, or you know, that you t- tuned into this message. If He's calling you to Himself, like He was these religious leaders, please don't run away from Him any longer. Think of how he loves you, and he's still calling you, and he even wants you to come to him. And yet, if you don't know him yet, if you're sitting there and you're not sure, if you're not sure, you don't. Because if you're not sure if you got the job, if you went for the interview, then you, you, then you don't think you, that you got it, right? You don't have it yet, because if you're not sure you got it, you're not sure, you, then, then you don't have it yet, right? So in spite of your rebellion, he loves you. And in spite of your spitting in his face... And in wanting to come to you, yet you won't, he still loves you. And he wants you to come to him. He stands at the door of your heart today and says, won't you just let me come in? Won't you just let me have the lordship of your life? And I can save you now from this wretched world that we live in. And I'll save you for all eternity as well, too. All right, well, let's get into our new sermon, shall we? message of our title today is, it's a scripture one of our scriptures in our sermon today, they have a form of godliness, but deny its power. They have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Now let's read Acts 8, 1 through 4, just a quick jaunt today, four verses, and then we'll have our sermon. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 says this. Now Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Wow. Pretty amazing. From one, from one extreme to the other, right? One extreme, the church is growing. The church is blowing up. The next extreme, bam, persecution. Persecution like they had never seen before. Now, one of the last terribly sad things that we read of Acts 7.58 was this. The witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is, first part of our sermon is really going to be about Saul. We're really going to focus in on Saul and his actions and who he is and what kind of person he is. And of course, since they laid their feet or laid their clothes basically at his feet, he was kind of watching them. You don't do that. They didn't do that because of anything. They were doing that because they were going to stone Stephen. 
right? And they did that, of course, because you can't stone somebody and kill them if you got your coats and if you got your clothes in your hands, right? Wow. And so basically, Saul was happy to hold them so that they could go murder Stephen. Wow, that's really how you can look at Saul here. And look at the first words of Acts chapter 8, just as, uh, just as condemning for him. Look at what it says. Now, Saul was consenting to his death. That's pretty harsh. So we got Saul happy to hold the clothes so that they can go murder Stephen, which makes him an accomplice to murder. And then he's consenting to his death in 8.1. You know, they really could have run those together and kind of started chapter 8 after that, but it's all right. We know that man added the chapters and the verses, but that's okay. We get the picture. Sounds like he was a pretty rotten dude, a pretty rotten dude indeed. Just how rotten was he? Look at verse 3. Skip ahead to verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. He did that on his own. Nobody prodded him. Nobody made him do it. He went off on his own after this, and that didn't stop him, right? This, this murder of Stephen, you thought, all right, his, his blood vengeance is satisfied. No, 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 no. He kept going. He kept on his evil. He kept on entering every house. Think about it. I think back to the time in our world we call the Dark Ages where there was still a light of Christ shining in the world through Protestants, even though the Protestant Reformation hadn't happened. And yet we had the Catholic Church just stomping out and just stomping around and and just forcing people, hey, this is the religion we're going to go by. And they just went around and what they did, unfortunately, if you don't know this, you can read Fox but Martyrs, but they were killing earnest Christians that were following the Bible. And the Bible was their biggest enemy because the Bible showed people that they were doing evil and they were doing wrong. And yet here, Saul, same thing. He made havoc of the church with his religion. And he dragged off men and women and he committed them to prison. This is... The church at the time, they didn't have the right to go into people's houses and have them arrested. And it says that Saul was doing this. It didn't say that the high priest got a hold of the local you know, guards and had them go do it. It says that Saul was going himself and dragging these people off. This reminds me, again, exactly of the darkness that the devil had and has over the Catholic Church when they were persecuting earnest Christians. They didn't have the authority to do that, yet they somehow took it upon themselves to do that. Now, between these three short verses and these two chapters, we can make these assertions about Saul so far. Number one, he was bloodthirsty. Number two, he was angry. Number three, he was an evil religious man. And at number four, his focus was aimed at destroying those who were following the teachings of Jesus Christ. And at that, sadly, number five, this is the worst of it all. To me, I know the murder is bad, and I know that's all bad, but Acts 7.58 says that he was just a young man. Now, he wasn't like... He wasn't a man that was like stuck in his ways, a, a senior religious leader of 50 and 60 years old. Who was, he was just a young man doing these things. When I think of young people, I think, oh, young men, you know, just young, and they're just, you know, they're out there. and they're No, no, no. Saul was an evil, heartless, just rigid, religious young man who was out for the destruction of these poor, innocent Christians that were just worshiping God. With this info in mind, it leads me to believe that 
he was one of the principal religious Jews that was heading up what is recorded next in verse 1. Look at what uh, Luke writes to us next in verse 1 after it says that Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, which caused, what did it cause? They were all, all who? All of Christ's followers scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So this persecution that I believe that Saul was spearheading caused this whole great church. Now the last number that we had kind of come up with was about over 8,000 men and women and children were in this church. Remember, we had taken the recordings of the numbers and how many were in the beginning and how many of the 3,000 got saved and the 5,000 got saved. And then we, don't, we stopped getting numbers. So this church, this church could have easily been about 10,000 people. And yet, it says here, because of this heavy persecution, that all of them, except the apostles, it says here at the end, were forced to, or they, they actually went abroad. They left the church. They left their homes, and they went throughout all the regions. And what did they do? They were preaching the gospels. We're going to find out. I believe that Saul was one of the principal Jews leading up the persecution of Christians because right after this chapter, Saul was the principal hyper-religious Jew leading up the persecution against Christian disciples even outside of Jerusalem. Acts 9, verses 1 and 2. We're not going to get to those today, but I'm going to read them over. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Notice that was on his own again. He went to the high priest. Nobody called him. Hey, Saul, we need you to take care of some business, Saul. We need you to go out and get... No, his own religious zeal for this God that he was worshiping, not the God of the Bible, I can tell you that, led him on his own to go to the high priest to get these letters, right? So that he could... What was he going to do? Verse 2 there, and ask for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that he... So that if he found any who were of the way, whether man or woman, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was on fire for destroying God's work through Jesus Christ. He was on fire. He, I see him here. He wasn't just an evil, heartless, religious young man. He was a super evil, heartless, religious young man. For he wasn't just satisfied with destroying Christians in his own house or his own backyard, he had, no, no, no. Saul wasn't satisfied until he went outside the fence line. He had to reach far beyond. Oh, I'm not just going to, I'm not just going to stop out this sect here in Jerusalem. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm going I'm to go everywhere they went, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy them everywhere that they go. No matter where they go, I'm going to hunt them down, and I'm going to find them, and I'm going to destroy them. And he did it on his own. Uh, 9-1, then Saul, still breathing threats of murder against disciples, went to the high priest on his own. That's amazing. He was truly full of rage and anger for Christians. He really thought that they were really from Satan and that he was really from God. It reminds me today, and throughout all of church history, it reminds me today of, uh, of him being similar to the radical Muslims and the radical Hindus and the radical Buddhists for yes, they did this. They, they have done for a long time the same thing as Saul was doing right here. They've been persecuting, imprisoning, and murdering Christians since for a long, 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 long time. 
And they remind me, Saul here was no different than these people that we've seen throughout church history, even that we're seeing today with ISIS or IS or whatever the heck they want to call themselves now. They're just a militant group of hate, hating people that want to destroy God's work through, you know, that God's doing through Christians. And if we think of it, Saul really spearheaded the biggest persecution the early church of Christ had faced since its conception. Sure, you may think, well, wait a minute, Pastor. There were other, yes, there were other persecutions, remember? There were two other times when the apostles got arrested. Yeah, sure, they got arrested, they got tried. But what did those result in? Those resulted in a couple, you know, one beating, some threats, and then, you know, they let them go. But they never, ever, ever went to bloodshed until Saul got involved. And then he was accepting, yeah, get them, yeah, I, I could just hear him cheering them on. Come on, guys, kill those, those anti-God people. Yet little did he know that he was the one that was anti-God. And, and it's like after Stephen's murder, the scripture tells us that the, the doors were opened. It's like the doors of evil were opened. The dogs were set loose on the rabbits. And the heavy persecution, the heaviest that they'd known, and imprisonment of Christians fell full force and all over. And we have Saul to thank for sparking and keeping this movement against Christians sparked. Wow. Later on, one of the greatest promoters of Christ and the Christian faith and of the cross said of religious leaders like Saul in Acts 8 and 9 that we've just been reading about, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear witness to them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That man was a, a great man of God, and he was speaking of people just like this overzealous religious Saul uh, in his zeal for God that he thought he had. But he had a zeal for God, Saul did, but not according to knowledge. And just think, if he would have just looked back at all the things that Jesus Christ did in his history, and all the things his followers were doing in their work of present in the name of Jesus Christ, he would have seen that God was with them and truly working through them, and that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah, if he just had looked at the things that they were doing. But he didn't. He didn't. He didn't just like the historical and the modern-day radical Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists, and other religious people, like they haven't either. They, all they hear is the message, oh, we, we serve this God. No, they proclaim a Jesus Christ. And yet they don't look at all the wonderful things about Christians and, and the things that they do, and they don't look at the work God's doing through them. Looking at the aspects of true Christians, real followers of Christ, since right after Jesus resurrected up to now, we find that Christians, earnest Christians, truly saved people, are some of the most powerfully kind the most powerfully loving, and the most powerfully passionate people alive for God. That they live lives full of amazing love, things like forgiveness for others, even in the midst of being persecuted. Sacrificial love, not just love, oh, I love you, sacrificial laying down their lives for those that they love, doing things for those that they love, getting involved in people's lives and becoming up, help to help them bear their burdens, right? And, 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 and purity, not only all those loving and kind and sacrificial things, and, and all, but, but we also, Christians, true earnest Christians, live certain types of 
holy lifestyles. True holy lifestyles, meaning in purity, right? In righteousness. Righteousness is so awesome that, you know, sin is abhorrent to an earnest Christian. So somebody that loves God with all the heart. We live lives in speaking, even our speech is seasoned with grace. Our speech is seasoned with, with pure words, holy words, not, not rough words, not swear words, not profanities, not curse words against others, not cursing others, but loving others and speaking to them with kind words, no matter how they treat us. You see, I, I've known many people that have been good, even great people, according to the world, uh, Muslims and Hindus, and Buddhists, and atheists, and homosexuals. In fact, I have a brother who says that his brother is, he would make a great Christian, because he's the most loving person, he's a very kind and loving person, yet he's a homosexual. And the Bible says that if you practice homosexuality, you shall not be saved. And so he's not a Christian. And so I know, and I've heard of many Muslims, and Hindus, and Buddhists, and atheists, and homosexuals that that are great people. Oh my gosh, they're, they're so kind and they're so loving as humanity goes now in a human perspective. But they do not keep their speech holy as God is holy. They do not keep their speech from profanity and they do not keep their lives from holiness or in holiness as they are slaves to sin. They are slaves to even hatred of many people, slaves of pornography and alcohol and homosexuality and all different types of sex sins, you name it. They're slaves to all of these sins because, again, they don't have, they can't, they can't break themselves free from them because the world says if you're not with God, you're a slave to sin. They have not, nor do I believe that they have the ability to do things like love and totally forgive to the point of Treating like family members, think about it, those who've betrayed them, those who've rejected them. True Christians, somebody that's truly saved, are a real child of God, no matter what anybody's done to them, Jesus commands us to forgive. So we're kind of like commanded, but it's, it's in there already anyway, understand. It's in there. The, the forgiveness and the love is in there. We just have to let it out. And of course, when push comes to shove, we do let it out. And we welcome back those that have betrayed us and those that have hurt us and those that have abused us, those that have taken advantage of us. And we can love them same as if they've never hurt us or abused us or taken advantage of us ever in our lives. As if we just met them and we were having a brand new relationship with them and there was no what they call the world says water under the bridge. To a real Christian, somebody that really loves God and the power they live in, there is no water under the bridge. When we forgive, we forgive. And when we love, we love. And we love as if nothing's ever happened, even to the worst of the worst that have hurt us. People of the world don't have the ability to forgive and welcome back as families those that have hurt and even killed their blood family members. Reminds me of a story of a lady named Corey Tenboom. You might have heard of her. She She was a Christian woman back in the days of the Holocaust, and when the Germans were attacking and arresting and persecuting and putting in death camps and concentration camps, Jews. 
Well, Corey Ten Boom and her family, well, they, they said, oh, we don't like that. We don't agree with that. That's not what God wants to do. So they were a refuge family. They were a refuge home for Jews to come and stay. And basically, they would save their lives. Well, they, the, the, the Germans found out and they arrested Corey Ten Boom and their family. And they took them away. And the father ended up dying in prison. And one of the sisters ended up dying in prison. And it, Corey's left over. And, and Corey... She finally gives it to God and she says, you know what, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to love and forgive these people no matter what they've done to me and my family, no matter what they've done to these Jews, no matter how they've killed my family. And she loves them and forgives them, starts a great ministry after everything's all said and done. Well, later on, one of the soldiers that persecuted her and her family and was even one of the rough soldiers that had was there kind of like in the concentration camp where her family was, who had kind of like, well, he didn't really care once her sister had died. And he came forward to her and he said, Corey, I, 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 I hope you can forgive me. I'm, the, I'm one of the men that was... And she was broken, but she loved him. And she forgave him, even though he was one of the principal people that was there hurting her and her family during the worst time in their lives that they had ever, ever, ever been through. And yet, a non-Christian could not have done that. Somebody that didn't love Jesus Christ, that wasn't born again, could never ever, ever do that. Somebody that's not saved, somebody that's not born again, could never have somebody spit or kick them in the face or in the body, torture them, burn them with cigarettes and lighters, and then tell them as they're doing that of God's forgiveness, along with telling them that they forgive them and love them no matter what they do. Another man of history comes back to my mind, a man named Richard Wormrand, who was in Comus, Romania. And these people did these evil things to him and these evil things to his family. And yet he openly told them, I I know you're doing this, but I love you anyway. I forgive you anyway. No matter what you do to me, I love you and I forgive you. And they would beat him and they would torture him and they would, you name it, terrible things that shouldn't even be spoken. And yet he, I love you. I forgive you. There is a God. And then he'd witness to them in the midst of this torturous situation. And then he'd witness to them. Nobody that wasn't born again, that didn't have God living within them, that wasn't a true Christian, could do this. Nobody of the world. No Buddhist. No Hindu. No Muslim. No no non-saved person could do these things. I've never seen or cannot see any unsaved person doing what Stephen did at the end of his life when Saul and other religious people were killing him. Acts 760. He cried out with a loud voice as they're about to beat him or beating him to death. Lord, do not charge them of their sin. Reminds me of exactly he was following Christ's example on the cross. Luke 23, right? Forgive them. For they know not what they do. Wow. Christ himself led the way. Christ himself, who lives in born-again Christians, we're going to get there in a moment, but we're able to do it because we love Jesus, because we're saved. I can never see an unsaved person doing what the apostles did after Saul's spearheading of the most tremendous persecution against Christ's church since its conception. Verse 1, right? They stayed there in the midst of all the persecution. As all the other Christians left and went through all the regions of Judea and Samaria and all over the world and the known world, the apostles stayed. 
even while Saul was breathing threats against the church, even while Saul was committing people to prison, going to house to house, dragging people up, putting them in prison, the apostles stayed. That, that's supernatural love, guys. That is supernatural love. Uh, I also have not, well, could never see somebody that's not saved uh, do what all the other Christians did after Saul's tremendous persecution. Although they left, the scripture tells us that they were scattered everywhere preaching the word. Now they knew that, the, that Jerusalem, the Jews in Jerusalem, the religious leaders in Jerusalem were out to get them. And yet they still, they didn't go, they didn't run away and hide Right before, like like the like the apostles did before they actually got saved and got born again, they went and they pre- they preached the word. They didn't go shut up. They didn't go. Oh, oh we we better hide out in caves. We we better hope that they don't get us. No, they left. But that by God's divine nature, because He wanted the whole world to know the gospel. And had they not left, had this persecution not come, they never would have left and, and started to tell the whole world about Jesus Christ. Right. So that was even an act of, a supernatural act of love by Christians. And I definitely can't see somebody, an unsaved person, doing something like what those devout Christian men did for Stephen after his death. Verse 2, look at verse 2 of today's scripture. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and make great lamentation over him. Well, they did that at the threat of their lives. Saul had just been happy about killing Stephen. He was just dragging people uh, off in their houses, yet they stayed behind to do the most difficult duty, to bury their own dead. (laughs) They obviously did this before they left Jerusalem, and, and as I said, think about it, what they did for Stephen could have cost them at least imprisonment, if not their lives. Remember verse 3, Saul was hauling people away. He was hot on their trail. And not only do I see, do, and not only do I do real and true saved people live these superhuman, powerfully loving lifestyles that go totally against people's ideals of what human beings are supposed to be, because really it is a joke. I mean, when, when people look at us, those that are truly born again, those that are truly saved, those that are living for God like, like we should be, their brains tilt. They just don't understand it. How can, they, how can they live that way? How can they love in the face of persecution? How can they forgive when people have done them so wrong, even when those people aren't, for, aren't saying they're sorry? Those people are coming back and repenting. These Christians just love. But not, not only do truly saved people live these supernatural human lives as far as their lifestyles and their love and their forgiveness, but they also, God does supernatural miracles through us and with us and others through our hands and, and by supernatural he- healings about, uh, against our wit for others too. I'll never forget, I had this man at work and he was an atheist. And he didn't want to hear anything about God and he was kind of close to God. And, and one day I, I kind of walk up to him and he's limping real bad. He's walking and he's limping. I'm like, hey man, what's going on? Oh man, I got, I got gout. And my, my big toe, I got this gout, and it's just, it's just killing me. I could barely walk, and I could barely, barely. I said, well, would, would you mind if I prayed for you? And, and even though he was close to God, he was like, oh, all right. Yeah, you could pray for me. The very next day, the gout was gone in his toe. 
Now, he never turned to the Lord, unfortunately, but yet, as I just said, not only do Christians live these supernatural, loving, uh, forgiving, amazing lives, but God also does supernatural miracles through us to even the unbelief to show them that he's real. I had another man who, at work who was a Muslim. He wasn't a radical Muslim by any means, but he was still a Muslim, and he, he had, he had kind of tried to talk to him about Jesus, and he didn't really want to hear it. But one day, I went there on a day off, and I had to get some stuff, and, and he's like, man, and he's talking to me, and he's like, oh, I got, I got this problem with my lip, and I tried everything. I've tried all these things, and I, I tried this medicine, and I've been to the doctor, and, and it's just nothing. It's just sore, and it's in my lip, and it just won't go away. I said, well, I'll pray for you, sir. I'll pray for you. Oh, 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 thank you, thank you. Uh, the next time I heard from him was about a month, was about a month later because we didn't work together all the time, but yet he confessed to me about a month or so later when I finally saw him. Oh, do, do you know, he was so excited to tell me too. Did, did you know, uh, just, just a day or so after, a couple days after you, you prayed for me, you said you prayed for me, all of a sudden that thing in my lip was gone. I was healed. I said, really? I said, so what doctors couldn't do, I said, I prayed to my God and you were healed. Now, at that time, he didn't give his life to the Lord either, unfortunately, but we know that the seeds were planted, and we know that God does supernatural miracles through those that are really his kids. Sincerely, truly saved and born-again Christians are supernaturally amazing, superhuman individuals. So much so, and I, I kid you not, because of some hardships that I had had, some persecutions that I had faced. I have a son who's choosing not to walk with the Lord right now. And because of all my love and forgiveness, and you know what, I'm not going to hold it against them, and I'm just going to let it go. And if, you know, if they come back, that's fine. You know, they, I'll welcome them back. You know, some people had hurt me really bad. My, my one son said to me one time, he said, You're not human, Dad. You're just not human. I said, What do you mean by that? He said, well, you just, people, they don't do that. Human beings don't do what you're doing, Dad. I said, well, you know what? That's, 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 that's because I love God, and that's because I'm saved, and that, that's it, you know? Now, getting back to Saul here in Scripture, as well as all the other lost, radical, religious people of the world who have terribly tortured, imprisoned, hurt, and betrayed Christians, if they would have just looked at their supernatural aspects of life, they would have not have been able to dispute that these real Christians, and they alone, do worship an amazing, real, tremendously huge and awesome God. The one who made heaven and earth and all that's within it, and it's just that simple. You, you see, a wonderful man of God that was an amazing promoter of Christ and his cross once said of a man like Saul and those like him that they had a form of godliness, but denied its or his Power. You see, the reason, as I've kind of alluded to a little bit already, the reason two followers of Christ have the ability to live superhuman lives of love and forgiveness and kindness and miracles and all that I just spoke of is because they have God Almighty and Jesus Christ plus His Holy Spirit living within them literally. It's not figurative, it's literal. And that's the only way that we're able to live lives the way we do. You see, Jesus said in John 14, 23, and when God says something... He means it. When God gives a promise, he means it. And Jesus said in John 14, 23, he says this, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. God literally comes inside 
of those who make a decision to surrender to Christ. And he literally makes them born again by coming and living inside of us. And those who are born again and with God and Christ and who love Christ uh, because they love him are, are born again. And we get this supernatural, awesome lifestyle that we get to live afterwards. And those who aren't, those who are like Saul, those who are like the Muslims and the Buddhists and the homosexuals and the atheists of the world, well, they just simply, they don't. Because they don't, they don't have God's power living within them. And since they don't have God's power living within them, they don't have God's power to love and to forgive and do miracles and live a supernatural, holy lifestyle. So sad, so sad. But it's just that simple. It's just the truth. Uh, just had a door-to-door salesman the other day try to sell me and my family insurance, right? And we told him we had insurance already, but, you know, typical salesman, and he just kept being persistent. So what did we do? You know, what did I do? I was, the Lord finally led me there. It was my poor wife that got the brunt of it. But I came along, and he, you know, I told him, and you know, I started talking to him for a little bit, and, and he just kept being persistent. So what did I do? Well, I, I just really felt, not that what I did, I shouldn't say, what, what did God lead me to do? I felt like it was a divine appointment to talk to him about Jesus Christ. I was doing some other stuff, and it wasn't the first thing on my mind, because, you know, I was busy for the Lord, and I was preparing my sermon and but you know I was in a break and I thought well you know what it's got to be Lord it's got to be and, and it was indeed it was indeed a divine appointment and he did he ended up being a Mormon after everything was all said and done and, and I don't know what it what it is about Mormons but I love them to death but I, I can be honest with you as the day is long I can see him from a mile away he wasn't dressed in his Mormon garb. He wasn't a Mormon on missionary work. He was just a Mormon that was going through college, like a 19, 20-year-old kid who was going through college and working his way through college and selling life insurance. But I could smell it on him a mile away. Sure enough, he was a Mormon. So we started having our conversation. And as I learned he was a Mormon for, you know, the, by his verbalness, I started, you know, my, 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 one of my most famous lines to all Mormons, to all Muslims, to all Hindus, is this one simple question. Just just one simple question. That one simple question is this. How do you know you're right? How do you know you're right? Because everybody has to come to that question in their lives, don't they? Whether you think you're a Christian, or whether you're a real Christian, or whether you're a Mormon, or whether you're a Jehovah's Witness, or whether you're a Buddhist, or Hindu, or Muslim, how do you know that you're right? How do you determine how you know that you're right or you're wrong? Well, his answer to how does he know that he's right is because, well, these other supernatural guys, and they had these revelations, and they heard from God, and, and you know, because of this and because of this testimony, a, a, a witness of the testimony, they call it, which is this warm feeling they have in their chest, which is just a feeling, which is just super, it, it, there's no, no feeling you can base truth on. Feeling is all subjective completely and out of the end. And, and we had a long talk and I said, well, you know, I'm a big guy. I'm, you know, I'm almost 300 pounds. And I looked at my gut and I said, well, you know, you know why I got this, don't you? And he's like, well, why? I said, because I feel like I want to eat all the time. I said, so how do we know that our feelings lead us to the truth? Because can feelings lead us to the truth? I mean, feelings often for me, when somebody cuts me off, I told them, I don't feel like going and giving them a hug, right? And telling them I love them. 
What I feel like doing them is running them off the road and, you know, punching them in the face when they cut me off real bad, right? But, but what God leads me to do, what I'm led to do, what the truth is, is I go and I, you know, do this or I don't do that or whatever. I said, but often my feelings often betray me. So how can we know that feelings really lead us to the truth? And, and how do we know? And then if you're trusting in these other guys, supposedly, that tell you they're this and that and the other thing, I said, how can you trust in man? I said, aren't you aware that Benjamin, Frank, Benjamin Franklin told us in an ancient quote that you can believe half of what you see and, and less of what you hear? I said, why, why do you think he said that? Oh, well, because I said, because people lie. I said, if people lie, how can we trust man? How can we trust people if they lie to us? Don't you know it? People lie. Well, he said, well, yeah, but, but, yeah, but, but, but. I said, okay, what you got? He said, well, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit. It says love, joy. And I said, yeah, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. He goes, oh, you know that one. I said, yeah, you better write I know that. He goes, well, see, those are feelings. Love, I said, ah, hold on a second here. I said, the Bible calls them a fruit. I said, a fruit, young fella, is not a feeling. Uh, you see that tree out there? Well, tree, this tree, they, they bear fruit, right? I said, where is that fruit before it's born? I said, it's inside of it, right? I said, so the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, or kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. I said, it's not a feeling, young man. I said, it's a fruit, something that the plant bears, not a feeling. I said, and these things are things that are within, and that they bear, they come out. I said, feelings are just that, they're feelings. Well, you know, and I told him about being born again and, you know, being a, a, a child of God. And so, I was, well, what, what did he do? Uh, he ran off. He ran off. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't say anything and he, he, he couldn't wait to get away and he, he ran off, but the seeds were planted. And you know what I find is funny too? Normally, Mormons, especially Mormons and especially insurance salesmen, whether any salesman, they're really persistent. Yet this guy, he even got my email address so he could email me back on a concern I had about a life insurance quote for a family member that I was thinking about. And you know, that was like Wednesday and it's already Sunday and I haven't gotten an email back from him since. I guess he was more concerned that I was right than that he was wrong versus selling me life insurance. He just didn't want anything more to do with me. No, true Christians, true people that have God living within them actually have that fruit within them. And those fruit, that fruit are fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control are within and then we bear them. That's just how it works. Because it's in us, then we bear them. They're not just a feeling. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, thinking of both poor Saul in our text today and all our lost Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and Jehovah Witnesses, as well as our poor Mormons, like my poor door-to-door salesman uh, the other day, and all lost religious people in the world, I can sadly say of them that they have a form of godliness, but they deny His power because they're not born again, and they're not saved. They don't have God literally living within them, uh, not knowing personally the one and only true God of all the universe. And unfortunately for them, hell awaits. Hell awaits at the moment that they die for all eternity, yet they all believe they're okay with God and going to heaven when they die, or whatever the religion says heaven is like anyway. Because 
The sad thing is they have a form of godliness, meaning that their lives and lifestyles to their God, that's important to say, to their God, the God that they worship, the false God that they worship, in ways anyway, has such a devout and super religious look to it, doesn't it? I mean, look at Mormons. I was just talking to a lady at work about it the other day. I said, well, look at Mormons. You know how they get people sucked in? They go to knock on people's doors. Oh, can we mow your lawn? Oh, can we do your flower beds? Oh, can we do this? Can we do that for you? And, and on the outward, their lifestyles to the service to the false god that they worship in ways look so holy. And yet, all they do is live their lives in their own power, serving a God that they and or their ancestors have really have made up. It's a God of their own design. It's not the, the God, right? Now, Saul and those religious Jews of his time did not make up the God of their ancestors, Jehovah, but they sure did do what a lot of so-called Christians do today. They worship him in their own way and make their own way to him, which was not the way that he made to him. That's unfortunately what the Jews are doing to this day. They, they, their God, the God of the Jews is Jehovah, Yahweh. But they don't come to God and they don't come to Jehovah the way that God says that, he ought, that we ought to come to him. But same result for Saul and these super religious leaders of his time as those that are religious of our day and like Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, etc., which have a form of godliness but deny its power because they don't worship the God of all creation, Jehovah and His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, the way that God said that they should come to Him through His Son and through His Son only through His Son. For Jesus said, For I am the way and the truth and life, and no one comes to the Father except by me and only by his son, Jesus Christ, that we should come to him and that we ought to stay with him. For there's one thing that God's taught me, and it's really ironic, and I was really almost led to do a video testimonial about it, and I probably am still going to, so you could be looking for that to come. Hopefully, soon God make the time, but God spoke this to me Monday. I was just testifying to my wife about this. It's one thing God told me on Monday. Now, Monday... I, uh, I'm, I'm just doing my overview. I'm not, I'm not even into my sermon. And so as I was doing my overview, God just laid these words on my heart. Some words that he taught me a while back, some words that he taught me. And he laid these words on my heart, and I actually put them for the, almost the end of my sermon, and I wrote them down on Monday, not even reading the rest of this section over that I was going to teach this Sunday. And the words went a little something like this, and how I know God is real is because he kind of does supernatural awesome things like this. I had no idea that this was going to work its way into the sermon. I had no idea how it even could have worked its way into the sermon. Yet it did on Monday, and it was four nearing the end. Salvation and knowing the God of the whole universe is not based upon popular opinion. Salvation is not each individual's interpretation or opinion or how I get saved, right? Meaning that no one is saved because I. You, your friend, your family member, your pastor says what salvation is. That's salvation in a nutshell. Or how someone is saved. Salvation is based upon what or how Jehovah God, the God of the Bible, says that salvation is. Period. The end. Right? And this wonderful God I speak to you of today, Jehovah God, the God of the Bible and His Son, Jesus Christ, 
tells us and all mankind that there's no eternal salvation in any other religion of Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, no other religion, period, the end, I repeat, no other religion other than through Jesus Christ and the way God made through him. And he tells us that all other religious ways lead to death, both now in this life and for all eternity in hell forever. Now, I know I make some big claims today. I know, you know, that I say some awesome and powerful but big claims about my God and the proclamations that he and others make of him in the Bible, but they are true. I promise you that. They are true. Like the claim that Peter, filled with God's Holy Spirit, made in Acts 4, 10 through 12, uh, that I stand on as well. Let it be known to you all and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, notice who it was by, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom God raised from the dead by, his, by this man stands here before you whole, the man that had just been healed. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other. Notice he said that. There's not salvation in any other other than Jesus Christ, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which one must be saved. How can I affirm the things that a Bible like I do and make these proclamations of my God that I have made that I stand on with all my heart today? It's, it's easy because of one term, uh, the objects that affirm the one term I'm going to tell you about, this is it, this is that one term. The one term why I know that I do have the truth. That Jesus Christ is the truth. And what is that term? The proof is in the pudding. That means that, you know, you have once mama does that pudding and that beautiful shell is laying on the top. Well, once that little kid, because we've all been that little kid, right? We've all been that little kid after mama made that pudding and we look in that, that fridge. Oh, man, that pudding looks so nice. And what does every little kid do with that pudding? Same thing my son did with the ice cream last night because the ice cream has that nice smooth surface on it too. What do we do? We take a spoon or we take our fingers and we take that little... Oh, and we eat it. Oh, mom will never know. Oh, mom will never, mom will never know. But there's only one problem with pudding and ice cream is that after it's been touched, after something's happened to that surface, it never, ever, ever looks the same. And you can always see that that ice cream has had that little bit taken out of it or that, that pudding has got that one little finger mark taken out of it. You can always see that for as long until you start eating it, until you eat it all up. The proof that that little boy took that stuff out of that pudding or that ice cream is always, always there. Well, what proofs do my God and his son, Jesus Christ, have going for them? Well, they have the Bible. The Bible is the proof in the pudding. The Bible. When they say, oh, Pastor Ed, the Bible's this, the Bible. Oh, have you really looked at the Bible? Have you really investigated the Bible? Or hey, has you just, so your uncle or your cousin or your, yeah, your dude at work, hey, y'all, the Bible, have you really looked at it? Because the Bible's very, very special. The Bible's the only spiritual book in the world that has three distinct characteristics of provable proof from the past that make it an absolute truth above all others, and one provable proof from the now that can be studied in real time. You want to know what they are? You, you got to see. You got to search them out or search them out for yourself. But they're there because you know you got to do some work. I can't. I can't do all 
of everything for you, right? But you got to search these out for yourself. But here's the three for the past that can be studied now is archaeology, history, the events and times of the Jews and them as a people, and prophecy. Archaeology is stuff that's been found that the Bible said was in certain places, and then all of a sudden people go and, oh, wow, look at that, it's there. Well, that's thousands of years old. Well, if the Bible was a lie, then how about I said this stuff's here, that stuff's here. That's one. History. The times and the Jews and the nation of Israel and how they exist and their, their history. Oh, you know what? Wow, if we even go to second, oh, wow, it's all really. And then prophecy. Prophecy is one of those things where man can't see the future, you see. We're so limited. We can only see what's before our eyes right now. We can guess it. Well, maybe by looking at this, maybe this will happen. But thousands of years in the future, if I say something now, chances are it's not going to come to pass because I can't see the future. Yet the Bible's full of things that God said thousands of years back that came to pass, that are even coming true today, and that will come true all the way to the end. Just look at the book of Revelation. Study these things out. I promise you, your head will spin at all the proof of the Bible that you'll actually find. It's the only one. Not one other religion or religious book in the whole world is even one of these proofs of truth to fall upon that helps support it, to help us know that the God that they promote is the real God of all the universe. Not one. Not even one. Well, what about the proof in the pudding that I spoke of that we can test in real time today? What is this proof of the pudding that we can look at today? Uh, one, I'll tell you, that's living and breathing proof, if that gives you a hint to what it is. Well, what is it? The changed life by the power of God of those who put their trust and their faith and, their, and they surrender to God's plan of salvation, Jesus the Christ on his terms, uh, that those lost and worshiping false gods don't. Again, those who don't come to God his way don't have the power of God. Those who come to God on his terms have the power of God. And once that power of God lives within you, you're a changed person. Amen. One pastor once said that once you meet God, it's like you just met a freight train. You'll never be the same. Because I'll guarantee you, Ladies and gentlemen, if you, if you stand there and let that freight train hit you, you'll never be the same ever again. Knowing the God of the universe and having his power live within you changes your life and makes you superhuman. The same thing I've been talking about. I probably spent half the sermon talking about the changed life. How do we know who's got these changed lives? Well, me. I was an atheist. I was a hater of God. I hated all things to do about God. And yet, when I started to seek God, seek and you shall find, God's power, when I turned to Him, came inside of me and made me the supernatural loving and kind. And as my own son's confession to me, you're not even human. Where does that come from? That's the proof in the pudding ladies and gentlemen. There's no way that if God wasn't real, I'd be standing up here preaching, which, which wasn't even something I felt called of God to do years and years ago, only till recently, that I'd even be doing this. That I'd even love people that hurt me unless there was a God and He was real and His name is Jesus Christ. 
<laughs> and even more than me, since I've never been a murderer or an accomplice to murder, as Saul was, the text we read about today, who was an accomplice to Stephen's murder, he's even a bigger, bigger, more huge than me, proof in the pudding of this God that I'm telling you about is real. We won't get into the details of how Saul was transformed and born again, but I will say this of Saul, that we're, the Saul we read of today, he was one of Christ's biggest enemies, as we read about in the first of the sermon, right? And the one who fought against them the most, yet he surrendered to Jesus Christ and he became Christ's biggest promoter. The biggest promoter of Christ that there ever was to date. No one ever, not one ever saved Christian has ever done for Christ what Paul did for Christ with what he had back then. He was the one, by the way, I didn't tell you the verses, he was the one, by the way, that wrote, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That was his letter to the church in Rome, Rome uh, chapter, uh, Romans, the book of, uh, book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 2, and the one who even wrote the very title of our sermon today. They have a form of godliness, but deny its power, his power, that was in his letter, his second letter to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 5. And the reason he wrote those things, the reason he wrote them is because he was that Saul. He was Christ's biggest enemy. But then he let go and he surrendered to God and he turned to God in God's plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. And he became a proof in the pudding of the real true God of all the universe. Because he had God's power then come and live inside of him. So that he no longer was, he didn't have a form of godliness but denied his power. He now had a form of godliness but magnified God's power. And he wrote those things because he lived on both sides. As I've lived on both sides. What side are you on? What side do you live on today? Whatever you call yourself, whatever your supposed religion is, whatever your supposed faith is, whatever supposed thing that you believe, if you say you're a Christian or you don't say you're a Christian or you don't think you're a a loving God Muslim or a loving God Buddhist, what side are you on today? Are you serving God in your own strength? Or are you serving God with His strength? with His power to come and live inside of you. God is love. Do you love? Do you have that supernatural love inside of you? God is holy. And He said those who worship me will should be in holiness as well too. Do you live a holy life? What about you? We must always look to ourselves. We can't always just look to these other people. We must always Look to ourselves. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, there's only one God of all the universe that made heaven and earth. And there's only one way to Him. And if you search out the things that I told you about today, you'll find that it's Jesus Christ of the Bible, the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. And the Bible full of proofs that we can rely on with logic and, and science and present reality, easy to prove, says that He died for our sins. He died and He took the burden of sin on Himself, your sin on Himself for all the world. It says that He loves you and that He wants you to come to Him. How do we come to Him? 
How, how, how do we do it? Is, is it by our own? We, well, it's just because I made it. Oh, it's my way. No, no, no. How you get into the master's house is by listening to the master. And what did the master say? What, what exactly did the master say about being saved? He said this, Matthew 16, 24, 25. Anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Turn to him. Believe in Jesus Christ. Turn to him. Put your faith in him. Surrender your life to him. Uh, in other terms, you've probably heard people say it before. Turn to God and give Jesus Christ your life. That means make him the Lord of all your life. Stop living for him as just a belief and turn to him and let him in. Let him in right now when I'm talking. I know right now when I'm talking, I know you hear God calling you. I know you do. Come to him. Turn to him. Anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. <laughs> and Jesus at the end of that same scripture, in case we missed it, in case we missed the most important part, because he goes on to talk about how we're supposed to live after we're saved. Well, you can't live for God if you're not born again, because you can only live for him that way in your own power, and that's not the power that's going to get you to heaven. So in case we missed it, those who desire to follow me, but deny themselves, give themselves to me. He closes that same section. He says, forever desires to save his life. will lose it. If you love your life and you just, man, I just love this world. Well, then you're never going to make heaven. You're never going to make heaven. Because he says, but whoever loses his life for my sake, give your life to him and you shall have this power of God living within you. And you will no longer be, have, look like this holy person. Kind of, oh yeah, you can, yeah, he's really religious. But you'll have the power of God living inside of you. And you could be a real proof of the pudding that God is real and there is one God. Turn to him. God is calling you. If you don't know him personally, turn to Christ today, please. And give him your life. Surrender before you die in your sins and end up in the torments of hell forever, suffering. Because that's not what God wants for you. His will, his word says, is for none to perish and all to come to repentance. All to turn to him. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your great love. Thank you so much, Lord God, for the way you draw and you call people to yourself. Uh, we know that, it's, that, that we're not, we're not uh, saved uh, because of the will of man. Because the will of man is totally against you, Lord God. The will of man goes completely against you, Lord. We know your word says that we're born. People that are saved are born from the will of God. And so, Lord, I know right now that there's people out in my audience right now that will listen to this sermon for, till the end of time, Lord, till you come back. They're going to listen to this sermon, Lord, that are not right with you. They're making their own path to you. They're not, they're not with you on your terms, Lord. They think that they're with you on their own terms. <laughs> but, Lord, salvation is not because I think I'm saved. It's because your word. What does your word say, Lord God? And we know what your word says. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Christ and give him all. Give them everything. Lord, I pray that they would right now. Turn them to you. 
Help them to be born of your will because it is your will that they are reborn. It is your will, God, that they come to have the power of God living within them. We thank you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. We ask these things, all these things, in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen.